0: Hi. uh, My name is Jim Haber. I'm a professor of biology at Brandeis University near Boston. I'm talking today about how cells repair their broken chromosomes. I previously uh, presented a video about the overall mechanisms by which this double-strand break repair takes place. And what I want to do uh, now is to talk about how we know many of those uh, steps in molecular detail. Um, Just to remind you, uh, I I talked before about the fact that tumor cells are really distinctive from the rest of the cells of our body because they have failed to maintain the proper arrangement of the 23 pairs of chromosomes that uh, we have in our body. And these tumor cells suffer uh, hundreds of chromosome rearrangements. Uh, And these rearrangements are are done by joining inappropriately segments of DNA from different chromosome breaks together uh, to make these translocations. And there's... as a consequence, what this means is that these tumor cells, uh, though they are efficient in repairing DNA in one way, they've lost the accurate uh, homologous recombination mechanisms by which double-strand breaks can be repaired. And that's the topic um, that I'm pursuing. And as I also mentioned previously, um, if the source of most of the double-strand breaks that lead to uh, these chromosome rearrangements are not from exogenous sources, such as X-rays, they come spontaneously from the process of DNA replication itself. And I illustrated that by the fact that if you deprive uh, these cells of their key recombination protein called RAD51, Uh, within a single-cell division, what you see are all of these chromatid breaks. And these chromatid breaks, therefore, represent cases where one sister chromatid is completely properly replicated, but its sister has an interruption. And it's the job of the RAD51 protein to patch that up. And I'm going to talk now in more detail about one way in which this occurs Um, And I'm going to talk about it using a model organism, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, where we have the highest level of resolution of understanding uh, this uh, repair process. Okay. I also mentioned that uh, there are multiple different pathways by which double-strand breaks can be repaired. Uh, there is a so-called double-holiday junction mechanism, which can lead either to crossovers or non-crossovers. And there is a synthesis-dependent strand annealing mechanism, uh, which only leads uh, to non-crossovers. I'm going to be predominantly talking now about this mechanism um, and uh, the way we know how each of these steps uh, takes place. Okay. So, the model system that uh, my lab has studied uh, for quite some time uh, is is this so-called mating type switching system within Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, Saccharomyces budding yeast has two mating types, one called A and one called alpha. And they differ uh, by a set of about 650 or 700 bases of unique information, so that MAT A has a set of sequences that MAT alpha does not have. Uh, And and they specify whether the cell behaves sexually as an A... as an alpha. Uh, But it turns out that yeast are homothalic. Uh, This is a term that applies to uh, uh, quite a number of different organisms. They are able to change from one mating type to the other. And this process of mating type switching turned out to be an opportunity for learning about how double-strand break repair takes place in detail. In in the case of this mating-type switching, there is a site-specific endonuclease, an enzyme encoded by a gene called HO, homothalism, um, that cuts the DNA just next to those red sequences. And it leads to the replacement of the red sequences by a copy of blue sequences. And obviously, for that to happen, there had to be a source for those additional DNA sequences. And it turns out that there are two... uh, other copies of mating-type information. Here, one called HML-alpha. Here, one called HMRA. And these uh, serve as a library or reservoir of sequences that can be used to replace the red sequences by the blue sequences, and it turns out also to replace the blue sequences back to the red sequence. So, the organism can switch in both uh, directions. What makes these donor sequences so unusual is that they are unexpressed copies of mating-type information, and they are kept in a highly uh, heterochromatic and silent state by very highly positioned nucleosomes that go across this region, uh, which requires a special uh, histone deacetylase called SIR2. So, these uh, sequences are not transcribed, uh, but they can be used as donors in this repair. Uh, event. And all of the expression of the mating type information comes from the mat locus itself. Okay. So, um, Ira Herskowitz's lab uh, made this all possible by making a galactose inducible version of the HO endonuclease. So, this enzyme now is only turned on when we add a particular sugar to the medium. And when you add the sugar to the medium, very rapidly, this sequence is cleaved by the enzyme. And you can see that by using a southern blot, which is shown here, um, where the... originally, the mat A locus is cut into a smaller fragment, which you can see here. And then, after some time... Uh, what we discovered is we could follow the appearance of the product, because the blue sequences have different restriction sites than the red sequences. And so, on a southern blot, we were able to sort of follow, in real time, how this switching process took place. So, the key elements of this is that the endonuclease is incredibly efficient. Almost all the sites are cleaved in a very short period of time, 20 minutes. Um, And after that there's a rather lengthy period of time before we see the appearance of the product. And that allowed us to identify lots of slow steps in this process, each one of which represents a key intermediate step in the process of DNA repair. Okay. The first of these that we uh, identified was... Uh, the fact that the ends of the double-strand break are uh, chewed away by exonucleases. And Charles White, who was a postdoc in my lab, uh, showed that he could see, if he separated the DNA on a denaturing gel so that the two strands, Watson and Crick strands, are separate from each other, he could see the appearance of these strange what looked like partial DNA digests um, in, in the... in the s- southern blot. And they came because the enzyme STI1 that he was using cannot cut single-stranded DNA. So, it could cut this sequence at the beginning... But once the DNA was being resected by this... uh, these exonucleases, now this site became uh, unavailable for cleavage. And that means that we could see a DNA fragment that started at the next i one site, or even the next i one site, and he could identify the fact that that resection was taking place. And this was the first real demonstration that the resection was happening in a polar fashion. It turns out that, as far as we can tell, all resection goes in this 5 prime to 3 prime um, way. Turns out there are at least three major um, uh, um, uh, DNA resection machines, if you will. One of them uh, involves a set of proteins called MRE11 and RAD50, and another protein called say 2 or CTIP. Uh, It does very short resection, and it then allows other resection machineries to be more efficiently loaded onto the broken DNA, one of which is an enzyme called XO1, which chews off uh, individual nucleotides as it goes down the DNA. And the second is a a complicated uh, quartet of proteins, which uses a helicase called SGS1, uh, which is the homolog of the blooms helicase in people, it's prying open the DNA, and then an enzyme called DNA2 is clipping off the DNA. Uh, So, there is what is called a helicase and an endonuclease, which is cleaving off chunks of DNA at a time. But by one of these means, then, we end up with single-stranded DNA that the RAD51 protein is going to use to carry out the next steps in recombination. Okay. Here's just another illustration of this kind of resection. Uh, It uh um, he it 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 we realized, and other people realized that you could see this resection much more dramatically if you prevented the recombination from taking place, and so either by deleting the HML and HMR sequences, so there are no donors, or in this case by knocking out the rad51 protein itself, so there is no recombination, now you could see these, uh, these bands appear on the on the gel because a resection is just inexorably going down the DNA, making one site after another not able to be cut. Uh, by the... by this restriction enzyme and leading to these apparently large uh, fragments of of DNA. So, that allowed us to sort of look at this process and to figure out that, in general, the nuclease is moving about one nucleotide a second, uh, four kilobases an hour. So, it's a pretty slow enzyme uh, compared to many uh, uh, biochemical reactions. Um, Okay. Another thing that, that is shown here is that if you get rid of the two uh, machines, the SGS1DNA2 machine and the XO1 machine, now basically all that resection stops, except for a little bit, which is being done by the by the last enzyme in this set, the MRE11 uh, complex. Uh, in order for this to take place in uh, in chromatin, because, after all, uh, we're not really interested in what happens in naked DNA, but what's happening in, in, in chromatin in, in the nucleus, it turns out that there has to be other components. Because these nucleases have a very hard time getting past uh, highly positioned nucleosomes. And so, along comes another enzyme, uh, which is known as FUN30. Uh, its name came from its original identification as function unknown now. Uh, and the name hasn't been changed. But what fun 30 turns out to be is a a, a chromatin remodeler, a a member of the family of SWI2-SNF2 homologs, which can open and push nucleosomes around so that uh, it is possible for these nucleases to get past um, these nucle... these uh, barriers. And so we've looked Uh, at that kind of a process in another way of measuring resection, and that is um, to use uh, small PCR uh, reactions to say when... uh, to see what is the state of the DNA at this location versus what's the state of DNA, for example, here. Um, and, And, of course, what happens is that a PCR will copy any template, but in this region here, it's all... there are two copies of the template. And in this region here, there's only one copy of the template. So, the... the intensity of the PCR reaction is going to go down. And you can see, over time, that the amount of resection is just going broader and broader, as, as the nucleases keep chewing away the DNA uh, at this rate of about 4 kilobases an hour. If you do this same reaction in the FUN30 enzyme, Deficient cells, which is shown here, now you can see that the resection is highly confined because it can't just go past all of those other nucleosomes, and there's about a fourfold reduction in the rate of resection. So, um, what I've talked about so far is the fact that there's a break. The break is made by a site specific nuclease. Uh, the nuclease induced break is then chewed away by a series of exonuclease enzymes to make single-stranded DNA. Now I'm going to talk about the next step in the process, which is how the RAD51 recombination protein gets loaded onto the DNA, and then how it carries out this uh, really critical part of the repair process, which is the strand invasion step, where this single strand of DNA finds a homologous template elsewhere in the genome with which it can make the base pairs as the initial step in the DNA repair process. Okay. So, I I mentioned before that that the RAD51 protein and and its E. coli RecA homolog were were understood by the really brilliant uh, X-ray crystallography of Nikola Pavlotich's lab in order to be able to see how the single-stranded DNA is bound inside this uh, filament of RAD51 proteins. Um, And then, inside this filament of RAD51 proteins, it effects an exchange of uh, base pairings such that uh, what was originally a single strand of DNA now is duplex, and it has displaced from the original duplex DNA a single strand of DNA. To be able to really see how RAD51 binds to uh, broken DNA in vivo, we needed another technique. Uh, This is... uh, too small to see microscopically, even with fluorescent proteins, uh, you can't see enough detail. And so we turn to a process called chromatin immunoprecipitation, uh, which I'll briefly uh, describe here. Um, It turns out that if you treat cells with formaldehyde, which is a cross-linking reagent, it will join uh, proteins to proteins. It will also join proteins to DNA. And they are held in this covalent state. If the DNA protein complexes that have been cross-linked in this way are fragmented, either by sonication or some other means, now what you end up with are relatively small pieces of DNA to which proteins are cross-linked. And if you have an antibody against a particular protein, in this case, Rad51, uh, you can immunoprecipitate only those segments of DNA to which Rad51 is cross-linked. And so, you pull down and purify a small subset of all the DNA to which RAD51 is cross-linked. Then, magically, by just raising the temperature to 60 degrees and holding the cells... uh, the the solution for a while, these cross-links reverse. And as a consequence, you can then get rid of the protein and purify the DNA in such a way that you can ask, either by PCR or by sequencing, you can ask what pieces of DNA have been preferentially recovered chromatin immunoprecipitation. Okay. So, we did that to look at when does the RAD51 protein come... bound to uh, the single strand of DNA, which is generated by resection, as... as illustrated here. And so, here's a southern blot. Um, it's spread out at the beginning to show very early times and to show you how efficiently the H-O endonuclease is cleaving the DNA into this smaller fragment. And then, on the top is PCR directed against the sequences adjacent to the mating-type locus, to ask when did... we when... at what point could we immunoprecipitate a RAD51-bound DNA um, and and then analyze it? And you can see here um, that we could get a robust signal uh, about a half an hour after we started the process. So, um, that's interesting, because we can see the cut at... Uh, at 20 minutes, and we don't see the RAD51 binding uh, for another 10 minutes. There's, a, there's another series of slow steps that happens before the RAD51 is firmly bound to the single-stranded DNA. What that other step is, it turns out... and I'm not going to show you the data for this... is, is that before RAD51 binds, another protein, A single-strand DNA binding protein called RPA first binds to the single-stranded DNA. And then it's replaced by RAD51 in a process that requires some additional proteins, one of which is called RAD52, and in humans is called BRCA2, and I'll show you a little bit more about that in a minute. Okay. Um, So, here... um, is, is the mammalian version of this kind of experiment, but now without being able to see a specific DNA uh, sequence. This is just irradiating cells. And so every cell has chromosome breaks after X irradiation, or, uh, but, but the breaks are random with respect to any given DNA sequence. And the advantage of the yeast system was we were looking at a specific site and could really define it in some detail. But you can see here that um, if you... Uh, you can see the appearance of fluorescent foci, which are done by looking at an antibody against the RAD51 protein. And so, when you treat the cells by by irradiation, you can see the formation of these foci. Those foci don't happen very efficiently when you prevent the resection of the DNA ends. They require single-stranded DNA for RAD51 to bind. So, if you block... Um, the expression of a protein called CTIP, which is one of those um, uh, uh, enzymes that is necessary for resection to take place, now you don't see these foci. Um, And as I said, Rad51 requires help in order to load itself onto the DNA. In mammals, uh, the key protein that is necessary for this is the BRCA2 protein, Uh, This is uh, the protein that's often mutated in... in... in, in women who have a predisposition to breast cancers, a familial uh, uh, predisposition to breast cancers. And you can see, again, that in the... in the radiated cells, you can see all these Rad51 foci, but in the absence of uh, the the fully functional BRCA2 protein, now these uh, foci don't appear. And the same turns out to be true for another protein, which is a so-called paralog of RAD51, called XRCC2. So, you need these additional proteins in order to get RAD51 to load, uh, just as you do in yeast. So, in yeast, uh, we did this by chromatin immunoprecipitation, as I showed you before, and it turns out that in the absence of the RAD52 protein, you don't get this loading, um, because RAD52 is a necessary part of the loading process. On the other hand, another radiation-sensitive mutant in yeast, called RAD54, turns out not to be required for this process. In the absence of RAD54, we we have RAD51 loading. This cross-linking technique, this chromatin immunoprecipitation technique, turned out to be also uh, incredibly valuable for uh, looking at the next step of this process. So, after RAD51 has... Uh, bound to single-stranded DNA, uh, the next step in the process is to search the genome uh, to find a partner sequence with which it can make these base pairs. And, of course, in the mating switching system, that would mean that the broken DNA at mat is going to find either HML or HMR, those two donor sequences, in order to do this base pair exchange and to set up the, the, the rest of the repair to switch one from one mating type to the other. And it turns out that since you can cross-link protein to DNA, not only could we see the cross-linking of the RAD51 protein to the original break, but once the strand invasion had taken place, now we could see that the uh, cross-link proteins would not only immunoprecipitate MAT, but they would immunoprecipitate the HML locus, the donor locus, as well. And that's shown uh, here. Um, So, MAT... PCR analysis showed that the RAD51 protein was easily visible by a half an hour after we initiated the double-strand break, but you don't see RAD51 bound to the HML locus until considerably later. So, the search to find the HML locus and to be able to um, facilitate this kind of repair event is, is a time-dependent process. And, and we could see that um, by using chromatin immunoprecipitation. So, again, just to review what we've said so far, there's a break. The break gets resected. Um, The RAD51 protein, uh, with the aid of RAD52 and other uh, helper proteins, loads onto the single stranded DNA, initiates a search across the genome in order to be able to find its partner, makes those new Watson-Crick base pairs. And now, the next step in the process would be to initiate new DNA synthesis to be able to copy... Uh, the new sequences that are going to be used to replace the sequences originally uh, at the mat locus, and and we worked out a way to see the new DNA synthesis. So here, um, uh, what we realized is that if we had a pair of PCR primers, one of which is specific for the donor and one of which is specific for the mat locus, they would originally be 200 kilobases apart, and there would be no possibility of getting a PCR product. But once the strand invasion has taken place, and just 50 base pairs of new DNA synthesis has happened, now there's a covalent piece of DNA, which will link these two primers together. And therefore, you could see the appearance of this PCR product as an indication of when had new DNA synthesis occurred, as you can see, um, by just looking at this... Um, at this gel. So, we could figure out uh, when exactly uh, this primer extension, the recruitment and use of uh, DNA polymerase, had taken place. Here, we got another surprise, and that is that the Rad54 protein, which is another chromatin remodeling protein, um, turns out not to be able to do this step. And so, even though RAD54 was not needed to do this initial strand invasion step, as I showed you before, it turns out to be critical for doing this next step, which is the primer extension. And we think that there's some kind of rearrangement of the chromatin in the donor locus that requires the RAD54 protein in order for the recruitment of new DNA polymerase to come and to be able to initiate this repair process. So, um, if we do this in sort of... uh, with more time points than I've shown you in this illustration, it takes about 10 minutes from the time we can see the double-strand break until there's the recruitment of RAD51. It takes uh, at least 20 minutes after that point, when the RAD51 filament can find its partner, which is located 200 kilobases away on the same chromosome, it takes a lot longer to find its partner when the partner is in another different chromosome. And then after that, there's still another 20 minutes after the strand invasion has taken place, before the the RAD51 protein can be gotten out of the way and the new DNA polymerase has been recruited in order to initiate new DNA synthesis. So, there's a whole series of relatively slow steps that we could identify as uh, important in this repair of a broken chromosome. Okay. I mentioned that... Repairing uh, uh, the break when the donor and the recipient are on the same chromosome is faster than when the donor and the recipient are on different chromosomes. And we can see that by using that PCR reaction as to how much slower uh, the interchromosomal re- uh, recombination event is relative to the intrachromosomal event. But that's just one place. I mean, we put a donor somewhere and we asked how did the repair take place. But you'd like to know more globally what does the position of the chromosome relative to the donor um, have as a a way of influencing this process. And so, here we took advantage of uh, work from Noble's lab uh, uh, in which they used uh, what is called... um, uh, uh, chromosome conformation capture by using, again, formaldehyde cross-linking of DNA to DNA to ask which pieces of DNA are more likely to be close together and which pieces of DNA are likely to be more far apart within the yeast nucleus. And so, this is a, a cartoon of what, where all the chromosomes are inside the yeast nucleus. We already knew from lots of cy- cy- cytology that, um, that all the centromeric regions are clustered together at something called the spindle pole body, the centriole. and so all those sequences are clustered together. But then the the question is, does it really matter if we make a break at this red sequence, for example, does it matter whether the donor is here or here or here? In other words, does this cartoon really predict how efficient recombination will be? And so, to do this... Uh, We we changed the system. We put the HO cleavage site inside just another piece of DNA, not the original mating-type sequence, which has now been deleted, but a, a gene called LU2. And then we placed a donor sequence that shares about two kilobases of homology with the the broken segment elsewhere in the genome. And we just measured by viability how efficient was this repair event. If it's very efficient, then the cells plated on galactose, where the HO endonuclease is induced, should be very similar to what happens on glucose, where where all the cells can grow. But if they're... if if repair is very difficult, then this number on galactose plates is going to be a low number. And so, to do this experiment, we put a double-strand break in one location, and then we made 20 strains where the donor was in many different locations. And they were chosen in part because some of them were estimated to be close together, and some of them were estimated to be far apart uh, relative to the site which is being broken and so this is the result we got. It turns out that the likelihood the two sequences are close together before we induce the double-strand break has a very strong effect on how efficient the repair event is. Some of these events are 50% efficient, and some of these events are a few percent efficient. And that's all dependent on location. It turns out, in mammals, the probability that those rearrangements, those translocations that I showed you at the very beginning that you see in cancer cells, is also very much uh, uh, predicted by the uh, proximity of the segments of DNA that are undergoing rearrangement. So, this seems to be a general feature of DNA repair that the really slow step in finding sequences to do the repair is searching for them over huge distances. And the closer they are to to begin with, the more efficient they are in doing this repair. So, I mentioned previously that uh, the Bloom's helicase plays an important role in the resolution of some recombination structures by being able to unwind uh, double-holiday junctions so that they don't end up being crossovers and lead instead to uh, non-crossover outcomes. And the Bloom helicase uh, carries this out um, in, a, in a way that is very obvious from this cytology here. Uh, here we see sister chromatids uh, undergoing frequent uh, exchange events, crossover events, um, compared to the wild type, um, because... This process of dissolving um, intermediates is uh, incredibly uh, efficient in, in mitotic cells, and we showed in Saccharomyces that this same Bloom's helicase, its homolog called SGS1, has a similar role. So. Uh, Again, using uh, the mating-type switching system uh, and the inducible HO endonuclease, except here we placed a donor on a different chromosome. Uh, This donor has a, a mutation, so it can't be cleaved. And the restriction sites are arranged so that if you see a crossover... Uh, you can see that that product is different from the non-crossover. So, in wild type, there are very, very few crossover events associated with this double-strand break repair event. But when we get rid of the Bloom's helicase SGS1 or the topoisomerase, you can see a very large increase, almost a a four-fold increase in the level of crossing over, um, which is associated with their absence. And so, this uh, dissolving pathway is preserved all the way from... Yeast to humans. So I've I've gone through a number of steps that we are able to visualize in real time by using the yeast mating type switching system and related systems with an inducible site-specific nuclease to be able to monitor in real time uh, these kinds of events. We sort of uh, grouped them all into something we called in vivo biochemistry, and we could describe uh, each of these. Uh, events in some detail. Uh, In in the next video, I'm gonna talk about uh, another uh, consequence of doing this kind of work, which is to reveal how mutagenic uh, this supposedly accurate uh, repair event actually is. It turns out that, compared to normal DNA replication, repair by these kinds of mechanisms turns out to be almost 1,000 times more mutagenic. than uh, than a normal replicative event. So, even though repairing in this way prevents the kinds of crazy translocations that I showed you at the very beginning, um, it is not without risk. And it turns out to be a reflection of the fact that this repair mechanism is not using the same machinery uh, in detail as, as the normal replication process. So, all of this work that I've talked about was, of course, not just done... uh, or, in fact, very little of it done by me. It was done by a huge number of people in my lab. This is not uh, a picture of my current lab, but rather a reunion of a large number of people who have worked in my lab. Um, This slide just lists all the uh, undergraduates, graduate students, and postdocs who have worked in my lab over a very long career uh, in order to learn a lot of the things that I've told you. Um, But in addition to these many uh, people with... who have been in my lab, we also have collaborated with an astonishing number of other labs in order to accomplish this work. And these are simply listing all of the principal investigators at different labs. Of course, they too had students and postdocs who were part of this process. So, learning all of this material took uh, quite a lot of effort on the part of many labs to, to really define... Uh, what we know about double-strand brake repair. Thanks very much.